0: Alright, we're going to take a look at a, a continuation, a little bit of last week's stuff, and the, the, it's not really the review of Danny's stuff. It's not even really Danny's stuff. It is Danny's stuff. But I think it was God's stuff before it was Danny's stuff. And, and that's why I think we're, we're up against. So, we're renouncing punishment in favor of restoration, and I know that I can't make that happen just by putting a title on a PowerPoint or a sermon. Because we got stuff to wrestle with, and I understand it. Um, this, uh, the the justice aspect that's associated with punishment is a big deal uh, the fact that, that many of us have grown up with punishment as the rehabilitative tool and you can go to scripture, uh, spare the rod, spoil the child all this kind of stuff I, I, I just want to let you know that this is kind of a safe thing to keep pursuing and I'm going to try to build a case for that for a few minutes and we'll have some conversation about it um, I looked in the uh, New American Standard. Uh, well, I started in the New Standard, and I started looking up uh, all the instances of "punish" in the Old Testament. And I'm not going to do a huge word study on it now, but I think the the word is "pa-da" uh, pa, pa or something like that. But it, there's a lot of them. There's like three. It's, it's used that word "pa-da" is used about 300 and some times in the Old Testament. About 67 or or so of those times, it's translated punish. But almost every other time, so we've got like 67 uses of that word that says punish. But its fundamental meaning, and the way it's translated the other 290 times, is to mean a visitation. So God says, I will visit the Amalekites, or I will visit the king of Syria, or I will visit you in your captivity. Now, I wish I knew more of the Hebrew and I could stand here and just wag my finger at you and say, this is what this means. But I don't, I don't have that kind of knowledge. But I know this. I know that there's a propensity to interpret a visitation of God in judgment in a number of translations. In other words, when God visits, that means look out, trouble's coming. But God visited us, and we're not in trouble. And ultimately, the the, the concept of God visiting people in the midst of their sin is most fully expressed, not in some courtroom scene or some judgment, but the incarnation of Jesus Christ coming into the depth of where our sin is and manifesting himself as our Savior, as our Redeemer, as the one that pulls us in. And so I'm not trying to go back and, and unravel the whole punishment thing. What I'm saying is that the most often used word to, uh, to, uh, to in the in the Numeric Standard and some other translations, most of them, that says punish is a contextually interpreted translation of the word which in its most basic form and I don't mean like reducing it all the way down to its root. It's just when it's used most of the other times in the Bible. because That's really the only way I know how to say that kind of stuff. Because uh, I don't know enough about the, the grammar and language to parse it all out. But when, when, when the, the writers of the Hebrew Bible or if you want to say the Greek versions of it, the writers of the Septuagint use something 300 times and the vast majority of time, like, like 80% of the time or more, it means visitation. But in these instances, it's interpreted punish. That seems like weird to me. I mean, it's at least worth a look, you know, that maybe we overpunish. The same thing about sovereignty. I mean, when we realized that the, the guys that were translating the NIV translated the name of God, Jehovah, as sovereign. <laughs> They did that from a doctrinal base. It wasn't done linguistically. And so there's a lot more to this thing about punishment. And, and so I'm just going to try to make a bit of a logical case out of scripture tonight as we start. Um, so here's the deal. Uh, I'm going to suggest that we consider renouncing punishment as our go-to solution to bring about justice in favor of restoration. And I think that God has spent a long time gathering a small group of people and a bunch of small groups of people around the around the country and around the world who are on the same quest, okay? And, of course, like Danny, he, he influences large groups of people, you know. Bethel's a big place, and the church there, the Jesus Culture in Sacramento. So this is a current issue with God, for sure. So why is Danny Silk so, Message so important for Joylanders in our mission and culture? So I want to read this again, and, and if you guys uh, didn't get Danny's book and you want it, just let us know, or you can obviously get it on uh, in Amazon yourself and all that kind of stuff. What did I do with my glasses? They're there. Um, but I want to read again the basic outline in Hebrews of the New Covenant, and then I want to ask a simple question about punishment. So here it goes. Um, After those days, says the Lord... I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone, his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no no more. All right. And then verse 13 says this, and I don't usually read it when I do this, but he says, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So what I'm going to ask us to consider is that the new covenant is the new covenant. It is the covenant under which we operate and and we function with God. And that these, I mean, and this is not an exhaustive thing about the elements of the new covenant, but it's a, a, a clearly prophesied and a clearly articulated list of of how the new covenant works. And if you read each of those, His law is is put in our uh, hearts and written on, written in our minds. His law, I mean, His uh, uh, stature is our God creates a stature where we are His people. And then He makes this amazing statement that nobody's going to tell their neighbor or their brother, "Know me," because everybody's going to know me, at least the greatest. And I try. I mean, I try not to make too big a deal out of that. But I can't keep my mind from going back to the beginning of the Gospel of John when John says that his life became the light of men and it lightened the heart of every man. And I can't get away from uh, Peter's declaration about, about uh, Pentecost that this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And what the prophet Joel says, your young men are going to prophesy, uh, your old men are going to have dreams, so I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. And I can't get away from the stories that make those scriptures seem applicable to this covenant, because everywhere somebody goes, there's stories about the the Muslims having the dreams of the guy in white. There's stories when I was down in Africa about, um, I mean, it goes all the way back to like the 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 what New Hebrides and the, the uh, what was that, uh, Meltari and anyhow, there are these stories in culture where there is a sacrifice being made to liberate people from fear and bondage and to unite them. And so, I'm just going, I think it's okay to look at this covenant as meaningful and realize that it's difficult to logically plug punishment into any of those characteristics. Hmm? Melthar was Indonesia. Yeah, that's like a mighty wind. Can't remember the other one. Oh, uh, Peace Child. You guys ever read Peace Child? Missions literature? Big deal. That, that whole system was in there before the missionaries got there. Because that life became the light of men and enlightened the, the heart of every man in some sense or another. You know, so we just gotta think about it a little bit. But anyway, I'm, so, I, so I'm just standing here going, wow, that verse that articulates this relationship we have with God, and that God has with the world, that Jesus secured with his blood. Because keep in mind, the new covenant is not a random act that just happened somewhere. Jesus held out the cup of of his blood and said, this is the new covenant. So that's where we're at. And I know I beat that dead horse for a long time, but I'm going to keep doing it, I think, because there's miles on it. All right. So if we... Have it if we are at least willing to concede that punishment is not the go-to mechanism for creating justice in the new covenant, then I want us to consider its alternative, which is discipline. Okay, so New Testament, uh, Testament discipline versus punishment, and keep your questions in mind because we'll have plenty of time to talk about it. So discipline is for restoration relationship between the father and the sons. Hebrews twelve. Is the discipline chapter. Danny puts it in here. Uh, I'm going to actually read that out of the passion because that's what he wrote it in. And it's kind of a cool, cool thing. So Hebrews 12, 4 through 11. Let me read that for you. After all, you have not yet reached the point of sweating blood in your opposition to sin. All right, so first I want you to understand the context of this section in Hebrews about discipline. It's about sin. So I'm not trying to say sin isn't an issue, and I'm not trying to say that we're supposed to minimize it or back away from it. But how it gets dealt with is what I'm talking about. Okay? So it says, After all, you have not yet reached the point of sweating blood in your opposition to sin, and have you forgotten his encouraging words spoken to you as his children? He said, My child, don't underestimate the value of the discipline and training of the Lord God, or get depressed when he has to correct you. For the Lord's training... For the Lord's training of your life is the evidence of his faithful love. And when he draws you to himself, it proves that you are his delightful child. Fully embrace God's correction as part of your training, for he is doing what any loving father does for his children. For who has ever heard of a child who never had to be corrected? We all should welcome God's discipline as the validation of authentic sonship. For if we have never once endured his correction, it only proves we are strangers and not sons. And isn't it true that we respect our earthly fathers even though they correct and discipline us? Then we should demonstrate an even greater respect for God, our spiritual father, as we submit to his life-giving discipline. Our parents corrected us for the short time of our childhood as it seemed good to them. But God corrects us throughout our lives for our own good, giving us an invitation to share his holiness. Let me read that line again because this is pretty cool. Our parents corrected us for the short time of our childhood as it seemed good to them. But God corrects us throughout our lives for our own good, giving us an invitation to share His holiness. Now, all discipline seems to be more pain than pleasure at the time, yet later it will produce a transformation of character, bringing a harvest of righteousness and peace to those who yield it. Okay? So I think that's, that's, I think that's sweet the way it puts that. But I, I do want to go ahead and read it in Hebrews, I mean in the New American Standard, because I just like the integrity of Sticking with one translation, at least for my beginning studies. Um, So you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, and you're striving against sin. And this does this isn't as poetic as Brian Simmons put together in the passion, but you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, and you're striving against sin. Same situation. So now we're talking about striving against sin, right? And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, if this was the only translation we were reading, we'd probably go, well, that sounds like punishment to me, more than discipline, you know. <laughs> but I, I'm okay with this having to wrestle through this concept. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, and this is a phrase that for some reason Brian left out, or at least I didn't hear it, but if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers. Now, I don't know what that means, but it sounds like it's important. It means something. It means that this issue of discipline from the love of God to train up people into a transformation of His holiness is going on in people's lives before we go reach them or before they reach us. There's something about it. I think when we studied about the wrath of God being revealed against all unrighteousness of the people who are trying to hold the righteousness you know, down, hold it in unrighteousness, I think this is what it's talking about. That the the Spirit of God is for discipline, but it seems against a life that's going the wrong direction. And so there's discipline against it. There's discipline against it. And the evidence is there's lots of people who have a rough road. And it, it's not, I mean, it's its a resistance to the direction their life is going. And I think that there's something to discipline in that in the Lord because I thought this was an interesting phrase. And, uh, but if you're uh, without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children, not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us. And we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He, for good, so that we may share His holiness. Now that doesn't sound necessarily all that exciting. If you're still thinking of holiness as a moral list that you got to match up to and you fail most of the time. But if we start embracing holiness more as the dynamic of life that exists between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it's how they treat one another, and it's how we learn to recognize one another, even if we just think of the image that we had today when the Lord took us to that mountain, to look at somebody and be able to recognize the nobility in them, recognize the value in them, see people like God sees them. You know, this is what this discipline is for, to open our eyes to that kind of thing and to stop living in these other kind of false selves. Anyway, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness so that is a definition of discipline. but now I want to read what has proven to me this week to be probably the most profound verses or not verses the most profound section in the scripture. If you remember last week we went through the thing with his son Tyler and uh um you know he he tried to differentiate between using his phone and his keys to set up an encounter where he could exercise discipline as opposed to but and and when we had our question session a lot of us were kind of confused about well it's, what this feels like punishment this feels like discipline so so here's two things the first thing is to notice here and, and this is what Danny says just after he reads the section in Hebrews. The first thing to notice here is that in the New Covenant, discipline is a relational exchange between the Father and his children. Though in the body of Christ we do experience discipline through human authorities like parents or leaders, that discipline is only functioning correctly when those figures accurately represent the heart of the Father and lead and equip people to connect more deeply with him the Father. Every discipline scenario is first and foremost about this relationship. That's really powerful. So, one of the definitions about discipline and one of the the marks that must be a part of discipline versus punishment is that that discipline is designed and is flowing from the heart of God through the heart of people who have authority or relationship or stature or whatever. It's flowing from them to a person to try to help nurture the connection to the Father, the growth of the awareness of the Father. And when you think about it, so we had some questions, and um, a couple of the times we were talking about it, what about Jesus going in the temple, turning over the tables? Wasn't that punishment? Wasn't that? And it wasn't just you. Too. We had a conversation with a bunch of people I did all, all week. It was an exciting conversation. Well, think about why Jesus said he did that. He said... This is my Father's house, a house of prayer, and you have turned it into a marketplace. So, I don't fully understand or pretend to understand his motive, but he stated directly, I want to clean, literally, this house so that it can once again be a place. And what is a, what is a prayer if it's not the voice of a connection with the Father? Right? So at least that motive is, is is understandable. It's understandable. All right. That was fun. <laughs> All right. So if we assume that it is the, the connection uh, that the, between the father and his children, that, that this whole New Covenant discipline thing is coming from, then we get in, the, in a page of who's being protected. And this was something that we also talked about, and we had some confusion about, which is totally okay. I mean, that's why you talk, and and think, and keep thinking, keep talking, keep questioning. So, who's being protected in discipline, and who's being protected in punishment? All right. So here, Galatians six one. Anybody know what that says, or do I have to go read it? Actually, I got it up here. Here you go. It says, "Brethren, if any of uh, anyone is caught in any trespass." Again, we're talking about sin here, and we're talking about sin being resolved, not being dismissed, not being overlooked, not being minimized. This is how sin gets dealt with in the New Covenant. And I would go so far as to say that a lot of times when we think in totally substitutionary terms, we are not dealing with sin because we don't require a relationship. We just write it off to grace, and then we be careful around the person so they don't hurt us again. But this is all relational. Look at this. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, that's pretty open. Anyone in any trespass. So, what sort of trespasses or sins are there that God uses the new covenant other procedure to do? <laughs> you know, I mean, if we just slow down and read that, it says, if anyone is caught in any trespass, here's how you deal with it. You who are spiritual, all right. So anybody here volunteer to embrace that identity? Being spiritual? Yeah. 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 No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> that's right. We better. And because we haven't, because there's a lot of people that don't want to take responsibility for this because it, it immediately means that you've got to be in relationship with somebody. You've got to work through it. It's messy. And that's what Danny's talking about, the whole thing. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, and then there's an absolute recognition that even though we are willing to stand up and timidly raise our hand and say, okay, I'm one of the spiritual ones, then I'll do that. He says, be careful so that you're not tempted too. Because it's not a finished work fully manifest, the gospel's not, but it's real. It's who we are. You know, God gave us a glimpse of our nobility today. Now, are we going to all walk that nobility out for the next 48 hours? I don't know, but I'm willing to believe that he's persistent and the Holy Spirit's good at his job, you know? So anyway, such a one is in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not to be tempted. All right? So discipline protects who? And punishment protects who? That's the question. Let me read the answer for the Danny guy. We got a question up on the on the board. Okay, who's got the question on board before I I go? Yes, Ronnie. I'm
1: wondering what page from the book Unpunishable you are reading this from. Uh,
0: I am reading this from page 106. Thank you. Thank you. You're right. It's the the last paragraph. The last two paragraphs. uh, the, The one that starts. The first thing I notice here is the one that dealt with what the the nature of discipline is, it's the relationship, the nurture, the relationship of the Father, and then the next paragraph starts with the second. So here goes. Listen to this. This is, this is, I think, the pivot point for why I feel like God wants us to take this seriously. The second thing to see is the Father's goal in this exchange. And let me back up the last sentence of the last paragraph so you're we're fresh with what the exchange is. Every disciple, every discipline scenario is first and foremost about this relationship. The second thing to see is the Father's goal in this exchange. He wants to heal us of our wounds, train us to overcome sin, transform our character so that we become mature sons and daughters who look like Jesus. In other words, in the new covenant, okay, now here it is. In other words, in the new covenant, discipline is focused on benefiting the person who has made the mess in the punishment paradigm the focus is on protecting the interest of everyone but the offender but in the new covenant we're brought to an understanding that helping the messmaker clean up their mess is ultimately what will produce justice and healing for everyone affected by it and then he goes into a little bit more detail. And he says, instead of taking the mess away or requiring the messmaker to deal with the consequences alone, the father's heart is to walk through the consequences alongside them, bringing comfort, correction, wisdom, and courage as they clean it up. This is his process for helping his kids unlearn the punishment paradigm and rebuild their lives in his punishment-free relational paradigm of love, trust, and freedom Thank you. I'll remember to try to reset that. So, uh, does that make an an enormous amount of sense? Yeah, no, I will. I'd like to read this a hundred times. So the second thing to see is the Father's goal in this exchange of discipline. He wants to heal us of our wounds, train us to overcome sin, and transform our character so that we can become mature sons and daughters who look like Jesus. Then the in other words is the thing. In other words, in the New Covenant, discipline is focused on the benefiting of the person who made the mess. In the punishment paradigm, the focus is on protecting the interests of everyone but the offender. But in the New Testament, we come to understand that helping the messmaker clean up their mess is ultimately what will produce justice and healing for everyone affected by it. When I read that in the New Covenant, Discipline is focused on the person with the problem, the offender, the messmaker. In the punishment paradigm, the thing that reveals punishment to be what it is, which is an isolating response to judgment and fear of being contaminated or hurt or something, everybody else is designed to be protected except the person who's offended. Which is why, if you remember some of the stories that Danny told, like about Ben and and his wife and stuff, the elements of punishment show up as demotion, isolation, uh, a series of things that you have to do, not that flow from the heart like repentance does, but as a a set of obligations so that we can look around and be sure that it's going to be safe to let you lead our 18-year-old daughters again. Well, it wasn't in Ben's situation. If you remember the message. He, uh, he 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 didn't do that. But when Danny confronted him about it at the instance there at the Bethel School of Ministry, he finally came to realize that he had responded to punishment the first time, and all that was was just a setup to push everything down, because he didn't get to the real issue of repentance and change. And so, discipline protects the offender. And Punishment protects the people who don't want to be offended or hurt. Now, I'm not saying that I have all the answers as to how we do this, but when we say something like we're trying to say in our um, mission statement that we want to help you have uh, an experience with the affection of God without judgment or religious pressure, that's what I was trying to say with those words, is that we want to allow you to have a safe place where you're protected without putting some kind of rose-colored glasses on and pollyanna like there's no issue of sin and, and, and there's not a, not a quest for holiness still necessary. But the way to it isn't going to be punishment because that's going to isolate the person instead of draw them into the relationship. And this things that we've been seeing in these ascensions, the Lord's constantly pulling us into the middle, pulling us in the middle. Jim?
1: How would you characterize uh, Paul's talk to the uh, church at Corinth about the guy sleeping with his mother-in-law. Okay. Dealing with that situation, with that discipline, punishment, or both.
0: Let me, uh, glad you asked. Let me see if I can find my answer. Uh, you guys know the story? guy was sleeping with his mother-in-law or something like that. I don't know what it was. Kind of a bad scene. Kind of the pool boy story in the Bible. <laughs> Let me see if I can find the answer. I looked at it a bunch, but I didn't mark it. Um, Let me see. I'm looking in 2 Corinthians. Ah, Don't put a butt in there yet. Mm. Sorry, I should have... Mark this because it's kind of important. Uh, Paul raises his heart. It happened in first, and it's in second that I'm looking for Paul's answer. What basically Paul said was he said, The punishment that you've given is sufficient. We don't want you to keep going and cause him to despair. That's what it was. Huh? He did. He did. He did. Uh, yeah, it's in second Corinthians uh we know then sorry, I really wanted to read it because to me, as I was 'cause I was going through all the punishment scriptures, Jim, is why I was spending time in it and uh, if anybody wants to look that up on our concord five one, okay. 2 Corinthians 5:1 yeah, First Corinthians 5:1 is the story. All right, I'll read it while you're looking for the rest. Okay, yeah, first Corinthians five, 1 Corinthians uh, 5:1. it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife you have become arrogant and have not mourned. Instead, that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present by the Spirit, have already judged him who has so committed to this as though I were present. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Okay? Your boasting is not good and so on and so forth. Now, what I'm going to say, though, is this. We have, at some point, got to take responsibility for how we, how we interpret the scripture. There, all right, because, I I mean, I know most of my life because of the way I thought, and because I I was more conscious of a punishment paradigm and God punishing people to get the goal done, that that seemed like a final issue. But over in Second Corinthians, it's not a final issue. It's Paul saying, "What you've done is enough." And his repentance has happened, and so bring him back in. Right, and that's in 2 Corinthians 7, 2, through 6. Thank you, Vicki. This is, now you guys know how uh, my study happens. Where's it at? 2 Corinthians 7, starting with verse 2. Mm, no. Not there. No. No. talking about marriage and stuff. But because of immorality, each man should have his own wife. Oh, I'm sorry. That's First Corinthians. Gotcha. Okay, so make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you. That one? Okay. Uh, uh I don't think that's it, Jim, either. Doggone it. Anyway, the story is Paul comes back in and he just gently tells them. So yes, I don't. I don't know what to contend with about. And I'm sorry for that. I could look it up in a short second. I don't know what uh, to contend with about that word punish, but he did go and say the punishment is sufficient, and it was focused around the heart of the guy. So don't cast him out. Bring him back in. His, you know, your, what you've done is enough, and he's doing that. And so all I'm suggesting is that even in the most direct articulation of punishment the goal ended up being restoration. Okay, So if somebody came to me and said, yeah, we punished this guy, but it turned out to be a completely restorative situation, then I wouldn't necessarily have a hard time with somebody using that word. But I don't think that punishment... But I think that would be a case of discipline, even as harsh as turning somebody over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Yes, Richard.
1: Uh, in um, Acts um, 26... Uh, Fourteen, uh-huh. uh, Paul, um, <clears throat> and when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me, and Hebrew, Now, this is this is taking place when he was perse- persecuting the church right. and uh-huh. so forth and so on, putting people in prison and 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 stoning him to death. Right, and then and um, uh, he and then God says, "Saul, Saul, or Jesus, Saul, Saul, why are you per- percus- persecuting me?" uh it it is hard for you to kick against the goats so um, they're going to here he is coming against the church and instead of you know striking him down mm-hmm. he's he's saying paul you're you're kicking against mm-hmm. what I'm trying to do for you I'm trying to bring you in to my love my my mm-hmm. presence my my family and you're just kicking against it and i think that's a lot what we do when we're trying to do our own thing uh say no god i want to do it this way and god says okay but you know yeah this is what's going to happen
0: well i i think that's a good uh i think that's a good illustration of of how we need to hone our ability to discern the difference between discipline and punishment because Paul was not only struck uh, in that encounter, but he was struck blind. All right? And we had the conversation, I think, last week about, well, what about Elimus the sorcerer? Why about Paul struck, struck blind? But if you think about it, I also had people with me during the week recount the story of Danny and his son and say, well, him taking his keys and his phone was punishment. But Danny says, no, that's not what was in my heart. That's not what I was doing. What I was doing was I was leveraging something that I had authority over To get to the point where we could have the conversation to lead to repentance, if repentance was to be had, and then what would happen if his son hadn't repented? Well, they just stayed at it. They just stayed at it, because part of the act of leveraging that is to is to create the scenario where repentance can take place, and then that proves that the motive was discipline and not just punishment. So I think the thing that proves that Paul being struck blind and, and 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 the explanation started there but I don't know that Paul fully came there but he's sitting there blind in a house and God finds a guy named Ananias talk about redeeming a biblical name, right? <laughs> finds a guy named Ananias who has the courage without knowing about Paul's conversion just on the basis of the Lord saying I have a great thing for him to do goes to him and, uh, and, acts on behalf of a vision. That's pretty amazing. And then Paul's blindness was healed so that his eyes would be open. And so this is, th- there's more to studying this stuff out. But what, my point is, what if we're being called to be a people? I can't believe it's 805. What if we're being called to be a people who can receive messmakers, which is pretty much everybody and receive them with love and acceptance so they can be transformed. Sonny.
2: Interestingly, <laughs> I was going to bring that exact verse up and uh, and then the Ananias thing. But, you know, it seemed like Ananias was a little bit leery because, you know, this is a guy that had been out killing people. and <laughs> No doubt. But uh, God said uh, that... To go ahead and do it because he'll show him how much he's going to have to suffer. Mm. And now it makes sense to me because it's not punishment. It's not payback. Like you've done this. I'm going to make you suffer. Right. It's like a continual life of entering in to something, some sort of discipline where that was the safeguard into holiness in Paul's life that Ananias could be assured of and be safe.
0: Yeah. I'm going to have to trim this short just because of the way we use time today, but Sonny, I want you to see this. The, uh, the gospel is he saving us from punishment or awakening us to sonship is what I put in there. And it's this exact thing about Hebrews where Jesus, it, it was right that Jesus be, because he's going to be leading a bunch of brethren, it's right that he suffered, you know, with us. On, on and therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also particularly tame that through death he might Render perilous him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all along. And if you back up to 10, it says, For it was fitting for him... Yeah, it's it's the same one there. It, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. To perfect. So the task is bringing many sons to glory. And we're talking about the one who didn't have to do any of this stuff, because he's is everything and, and everybody. Um. To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. Let that verse say what it says. Don't let it say what you think. He's not saying that there's something unique going on with Jesus that doesn't touch us. He is saying for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. So this, the gospel is the story of discipline bringing back the restoration of the father and the, sons, the children's relationship. And, and, if, and our gospel is avoiding punishment for sin by some mechanism called grace and repentance, which really isn't repentance, it's confession, right? And the, most of the way we talk about gospel, because you can't tell if a person repents person has a crying jag at the front of the church while they're under conviction and they go up and uh, and you try to get them to repent of their sins. You're, you're not actually getting them to repent of their sins. They can't be. They're confessing their sins. And then it's a crapshoot whether they're going to repent them or not. So, that's what I think this is so important for. Hey, we accept you. We're not going to judge you. Let me show you this thing that I... Uh, we don't have time for that, but we do have time for this. Okay, so here's the New Covenant mission. And this is what I think you're talking about, Sonny. A person has a false self, and that false self is, I'm an orphan. And Danny backs us all up. Okay? That orphan, because he's an orphan, and he's self-protective, and he's insecure, makes a mess. Okay? Now, we receive that person with love, gentleness, and revelation. And that's not just a a poorly spaced thing. We get in their mess. You see what I'm saying? Now, most evangelical presentations of the gospel keep your mess a 20-mile distance. We want to hear you repent. (laughs) Repentance is not something you can hear. (laughs) Repentance is something that you see and you experience. Confession is what you hear. All right? And there's a place for confession. But here, we have the false self making a mess, and that mess could be one that was made by one of us in this room. Uh, Jeremy's looking forward. There he is. He's looking forward to our next Tuesday night study because we're going to confess our sins one to another so that we can be healed. Finally, we found the key to being healed. It's believing and confessing your sins. James 5.20 and down. Read it. It's awesome. Anyhow, so... So now, that mess could be the one that they carry into our midst. They carry into our relationship. People's lives are a mess. And they don't know how to get out. And they generally don't have anybody to help them get out. So they respond to us receiving them with love, gentleness, and revelation. Right? Restore the one gently. By confessing. And it's a true thing. But that's not repentance. That's not the end of the process. That's the beginning of the process. If we will stay in relationship with him, if we will not try to short-circuit that thing, and, and honest to goodness, confession is good for the soul. I understand that. But confession is not the journey. It's the beginning of the journey. So then what they can do is they can experience forgiveness. Now, the reason I've got these in the colors I've got them, I've got this false self starting out in this yellow. I've got the massive version of that that's blended with a bunch of other stuff. And then I've got this blue coming in here that's who the spiritual are. Not who necessarily we are as an individual, but the spiritual. Let the spiritual restore such a one. So the first step of that is to receive them with love and gentleness and revelation. Maybe the first time they've ever had a reasonably accurate definition of love impact their life. Maybe. And, and, and certainly revelation. So they respond. They're still the same person. They experience forgiveness. What? Sure. We can forgive them because they're already forgiven. Jesus took care of that when he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They've asked. We haven't presumed on it. It's in relationship to their confession, but they're not repenting yet. What they are is they are a person who is in the process of recognizing what's going on in their life, and, and they're being opened up to a whole new life, and now here we go. It's a time for relational path to repentance or to clean up that mess. That means That means... That if we want to call their receiving, uh, being received with love and being provoked to confess their sins, if we want to call that when they're born again, then when they're born again is just the beginning of the work for us and them, if we'll stay in relationship. All right, so what comes from that relational path is reconciliation and hopefully repentance or repentance and reconciliation. The reason I blended the green and the blue is all of a sudden now they're starting to change. See, this thing is going on. Repentance is associated with the thing that was wrong and the false identity, the false self, but reconciliation is now beginning to be the blend of that life that that blue represents and, and their their orange, yellow, cautionary life, self-protective life is being changed. So it's starting to look green. I don't know if that really makes any sense. but All right, so then what that leads to Is restoration, and and Danny really lays it out great in the book. Restoration with God, which sometimes includes forgiving him, not because he did anything wrong, but because you've held it against him. You know, if you could create the universe, you certainly didn't need to let this happen to me or whatever the case is. Uh, Forgiving God, forgiving yourself. And if you get the book and you read the story about uh, Jonathan Walton's struggle, in his journey, which is a part of the book, to forgive himself. It was a huge, huge point. It was a thing that, after tons of progress in this area, boom, wall came up. Tons of progress in this area, boom. It's all about forgiving himself. And so it's pretty pretty powerful. Um, And then others, of course. Of course, now, this isn't going to be fulfilled just by reading a 12-step program. This is really going back in there because it has to do with reconciliation. You're talking to people. You're walking your way through this repentance. But what it produces, if you don't quit... And if people, somebody that's with you doesn't give up on it, you live in shalom. And I don't have any more time to talk about that, but that's the whole peace, wholeness thing that's missing in everybody's life. You know, that's shalom, that's peace. Danny talks about it again in the book. But you guys, we've had those lessons about that. All right, so here's what happens then. In this process, things change. At one point you start this, or a person starts it as an orphan, which requires that they have walls, it requires they protect themselves, it requires that they take from the people around them to survive. But uh, they, what it's traded out for is true sonship. And it, it goes back to what I think Danny said so well, that the first thing that God wants to do with discipline is nurture that relationship, restore that relationship between a father and his child. And when somebody comes as an orphan, the biggest breach is between them and their father. No matter how much they hurt the people around them. The biggest breach. Because we could just bump into one another and bruise each other up, but there is a violation of the very fabric of creation when people don't acknowledge their father. Okay? And then what happens? Sweet the false identity is transformed into these things and and if this is true which i think it is and if we can participate in this we take orphans by loving and accepting and receiving and confronting not being we're not just talking about again you know that's why i went back to the beginning sin is the issue in our evangelism and relationships, but it is not an issue that can be saved by getting somebody to conjure up a token sin to confess that's bad enough that they make you think you're serious, but not so bad that you think they're despicable and they're going to hate you. We're talking the real sin. We're talking allowing the wrath of God to be revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who seek to hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that's what an orphan does. And that's what the people we're being called to do. And I think that God's calling us to be the spiritual and to open our hearts to relationships. And I don't know how quickly that's going to happen or how... I mean, are we ready? I guess is what the thing is. But the goal is that a person goes from being an orphan with all of the characteristics of an orphan life and they become aware of and functional in their true sonship identity And then they are able to be a friend. And they are able to receive with love, gentleness, and revelation. And that's when you know people are transformed. And I think that's what we're being called to. Not to just preach a gospel that basically is an emotional, self-centered thing and then try to encourage people to be the right kind of hypocrite to fit in with our crowd. Cover the sin the best way you can so that we all look alike and aren't threatened by one another. Sonny, you have something? Uh, Grab it over there so they can hear. (laughs) (laughs) He sat on the wrong side of the room.
2: Just had this thought where we consider ourselves the body of Christ and we try to operate out of gifting and it's almost like an organization apart from family sometimes. But I think the bottom issue of being the bottom of the body of Christ is first God's trying through that, to, like that's what true family is. Sure, and uh, and that's where a lot of well,
0: think are. about this. You know, we we use the word family, and I even kind of got uh, I I kind of got despoiled for the word family, and I started to, wanting to call us a community and stuff like that. But I think that was just me responding to people that I loved that said. Your family, your family, your family, and then they bug out. You know, mm-hmm. just to be honest. But, uh but I don't. Confessing the sin. Oh. Yeah, you confess the sin. <laughs> confess your sins one another so you can be healed. So I, I took it on myself to rewrite the the the, the essence of those words. But the truth is, it, it has to be family because it's about the father and his children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what it's about, and that's what we've been honing in on. We've been seeing the father in everything we've studied in this last year, and. And uh, go ahead.
2: Well, ultimately, when it's all said and done, that's what we're going to end up with. That's what we're going to be in. That's all
0: there is going to be left. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Jesus, that, the part of the gospel I didn't read there in Hebrews chapter 2, is leading many sons to glory. That's family. That's what Jesus' mission is. Does this all make sense? All right. I, now, I think it's worth... I think it's worth uh, thinking about because I'm not trying. I am trying to get us to repent into this thought. All right, and that doesn't mean that it's going to be accomplished by you just agreeing with me. So I feel good about what I just said. That is going to happen when we take some serious stock of: Am I actually prepared to to release a part of my heart into relationship with somebody? Let me. Let me look at somebody in the congregation that's doing that right now. Okay? Are we actually prepared, <laughs> prepared to release our hearts to somebody who, who, is a, who has the capability of making a mess? And then are we going to walk with them through that? And then are we going to begin to see the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does to make truth? Now, in the case of these guys, the answer is yes. And we can talk about who and what later. But agreed? There's no way around it. This is the gospel. This is discipleship. This is who Joyland is called to be. And Joyland doesn't exist apart from you guys. And so that's who you're called to be. And even if you leave Joyland, you're still called to be that. <laughs> you know? I, I just think it's amazing. But, don't. but what? But don't. Oh, yeah, don't leave. Don't leave. <laughs> no, you got it easy here, man. You go someplace else. You got to put a face on. You got to make sure you understand what the culture expects. All kind. Of, and and they, believe me, I'm not trying to run down a bunch of other churches. I'm just saying that that God's been with us for a long time, trying to teach us this. And I think we learned it. I think we're ready. Yeah.
1: So it turns out discipleship yep. is related, is related to, to, discipline. to
0: discipline, right? Yes. Right. Yeah, and discipleship yep. is a relationship toward a relationship, and so is discipline, yeah.
1: Right. So I know it's been said before, you know, the disciplined ones are the disciples, but uh, now we're getting a bigger, bigger picture of what the discipline's all about and how that's the new covenant, and that's part of the discipleship.
0: That these these uh, unqualified clauses of the new covenant, you know, uh, I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people. I'm mean, like, I'm committed, you know? Uh, I'm putting everything inside them that's necessary, and I'm putting the knowledge of me inside them so that they don't have to... T- the whole issue is not about, no God, no God. The whole issue is about, have the courage to clean up your mess, and I'll walk with you through it. That's powerful. Just
2: yes? Just one comment, but disciple of discipline is almost spelled the same, right? Yeah. So it's part of the same word, yeah. I'm assuming.
0: Yeah, 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 it comes from the same root for sure. And both, see this is the thing, both are relational, both reflect that, and both are to the end of becoming like, becoming like. And that's why Paul could say, uh, you know, follow me as I follow Christ as a part of his discipline. All right. Well, Lord, I think you're getting the point across to us, and I'm happy about it. I'm sorry I don't know where that passage is in 2 Corinthians, but I will before the end of this evening. And... uh I call myself a pastor. I do, actually. And, um, Father, I thank you for the privilege of bearing, of being gospel bearers. Bearers of the good news, the good news that in this covenant, you are our Father. And you are the Father of those that we rub shoulders with out in the world. And so, Lord, um, we don't know everything, but we do know you. We don't know everything about you, but we know that you're good. We know that you love us. We know that every family under heaven and earth derive their name from you. And we know that from the beginning you have been motivated by love to restore. And so, as best as we can understand it right now, and we're more than desirous to think about it and to receive more revelation, we give ourselves to the ministry of reconciliation, to the gospel, and to the message and the relationship and the restoration and transformation it brings. Help us to understand true repentance. Help us to live in it ourselves. And uh, use us as much as you can. In Jesus' name. Praise God, that was good.